Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're continuing our series on James Cameron. Uh, today we're talking about Avatar. Your brother represented a significant investment. We'd like to talk to you about taking over his contract. And since your genome is identical to his, you could step into his shoes, so to speak. It'd be a fresh start on a new world. And the pay is good. Very good. This is an epic environmental science fiction action all-purpose allegory. Directed by James Cameron. The cast includes Perseus, Gamora, Ripley, Ike Clanton, Yousef, Letty, and Owen from Dodgeball. I watched this movie on Disney+. Plus. Joey, how did you watch it? So I heard that they, didn't, they removed parts of the sex scene from Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, they- so I attempted to watch it on a different streaming service to see, you know, as it was intended to be watched in theaters. Uh, so I watched it on Amazon, but they removed it there too. What? It was gone. It was gone. Just completely cut out. Okay, well, I've, I'm glad we're addressing this first up because obviously it's the most important thing about this movie. Um, yep. So my interpretation as a kid was that, yeah, they're having sex. But now my understanding is that they're like becoming one with each other. It's like you can feel my emotions like we're letting each other in in like a more spiritual and in, in, in literal sense, of course, as well, the way this works. But it's like they're not having sex with the horses. They're not having sex no. with the sky dragons. So right. I've always understood that. I always understood that, that was there was a difference there. And like that that intimacy of yeah. like connecting your braids together was something really special. Um right. With another, with another intelligent being. Right. right? So it's, I don't understand why they have there. to take that out. Because in my like again, like the Navi wear clothes. Like I assume they've got genitalia under the clothes. But look at the way that they're moving. Look at the way that they're moving in that scene. You know, it's it's not like they're just like you know writhing on the ground because they're like next to each other, right? They're like touching each other. Like there's a, there's a sensory element to this. I'm assuming you know. I don't want to say it this early in the podcast, but <laughs> penetration. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> I didn't see. I haven't seen the actual scene in a long time, though. So wait, does do they actually have sex as well as putting their hair together in well, like the? No, I mean, I mean, just what, I mean from what we saw in this in this version with that cut out, right? You saw them sitting with each other in the tree, yeah, right, and they're like really close, kissing each other, right? Uh, you know, she's sitting on his lap, right? Like it's it's very it's, and the way that they're like they're moving, right? <laughs> sure sure yeah okay there's this like it's not just the braid i'm saying that's like that they're connecting together i actually didn't come to that conclusion but i guess you're making their case for them you would maybe need to bump this one up a little bit in the ratings if there is like a clear i mean i was surprised how quickly that scene ended in the disney plus cut uh, but yeah. I don't think it took anything away. I still got came to the same conclusion that right. they were mated. For well, they life did say now. mate. They were mating. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, well, we can. I think we can end the podcast there. I think we've covered. <laughs> we think we, we, we solved this one. <laughs> uh, but do you know of any place where you can watch the full version? I don't know. I didn't actually like try to find anything. I just attempted another streaming service. So I just assumed that it was Disney's, uh, you know, um, prude engineers right. over there. Their their uh, editing department that's made up of uh, 
both uh, groomers and of um, prudish people that won't let anything go through their filters. Right. Uh, at the same time. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, it's uh, <laughs> another problem with getting your movies through streaming services. Uh, you know, you got to have the physical media if you don't want some, you know, uh, media overlords to dictate which version of the movie you get to see in the future. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, <laughs> even though we've already covered a lot, uh, we're going to <laughs> talk about what happened in this movie before we actually start analyzing it with our synopsis that you wrote, Joey. So go ahead. One life ends, another begins. Jake Sully's twin brother was killed in a violent mugging, which gives Jake an incredible opportunity. He can take his brother's place on a spaceship ride to Pandora, the lush forest world that orbits a massive blue gas giant. Humans have made a temporary home on Pandora in order to harvest its incredible resources, most specifically a mineral called unobtainium that must be mined for. The planet is not just plant life, however. Animals of all shapes and sizes, many extremely alien to Earth, roam the thick jungle in an extremely delicate and complex ecosystem. At the heart of that ecosystem is a humanoid, intelligent race of lanky blue aliens called the Navi. Jake's brother studied for years to become an avatar pilot. Essentially, a Navi body was grown using Jake's brother's DNA and can be controlled remotely by laying down in a special science pod. The avatars are extremely expensive pieces of technology and only people with compatible DNA can control them. Hence, why Jake is here. In a previous life, Jake was a Marine. During his tour of duty, he lost the use of his legs and now gets around in a shitty wheelchair. Jake represents a unique intersection between the two factions of humans on Pandora. For Dr. Grace Augustine and the other scientists, he's another avatar pilot that can safely traverse Pandora's dangerous landscape and atmosphere, as well as interact more directly with the native Navi. For Colonel Miles Korich and the rest of the private military tasked with keeping the natives from interfering with the mining operation, Jake is the perfect spy able to get close to the Navi while giving intel to the guys with guns. While using his avatar, Jake gets separated from the rest of the science friends and lost in the forest. He is rescued by Natiri, the daughter of the chief of a nearby tribe of Navi. Natiri receives a sign from Ewa, her Gaia-like deity, to bring Jake to her tribe. Jake proclaims his willingness to learn their ways, despite their skepticism. The other scientists are jealous of Jake's quick assimilation into the Navi and become suspicious of him spending time with the military. So they move their operations to a more remote part of the area, high in the legendary floating mountains of Pandora. Jake studies hard, and he and Neytiri grow close. He learns how to ride a horse and a big old dragon bird, how to hunt and show deference to Ewa. The more he learns from the Navi, the more torn he becomes about his mission. Eventually, a choice must be made. After having hot alien sex with Neytiri, human bulldozers appear in the forest, making a beeline for Home Tree, the central spot for Neytiri's tribe. Jake begs with the military and corporate guys to give him a chance to convince the Navi to evacuate before they are all killed. Jake reveals to his new blue friends his true mission, and the Navi, of course, see this as a betrayal. Tensions are real hot from everyone. 
The humans go in with helicopters and totally 9-11 that big tree, covering the landscape in debris and killing an unknown number of Navi. Jake, Grace, and his science friends are locked up, but are soon rescued by a sympathetic helicopter pilot. As they race down the tarmac, Colonel Colrich shoots at them, fatally hitting Grace. Jake decides there's only one thing to do. He tracks down and tames Torak, a fearsome sky beast that the Navi rightfully run from. By bringing it under his control, Jake has become Turok Makto, a symbolically powerful warrior and leader. This impresses the Navi enough to let Jake back into their good graces. Speaking of good graces, Grace is still dying. (laughs) (laughs) Jake and the Navi bring her to the Tree of Souls, the most sacred place for the native Pandorans. They attempt to use their forest magic to transfer Grace from her human body into her avatar body, but Grace dies in the process. Jake immediately starts assembling all the nearby Navi tribes, readying them for war. The humans are coming, and they are aiming a bomber straight for the Tree of Souls. There's an epic battle. Human helicopters are taken down by Navi-ridden dragons. Arrows sprout from the chests of human infantry, and fire consumes the forest. Even with the home field advantage and some good old-fashioned surprise, Jake and the Navi are losing fast in the face of superior firepower. But just when all seems lost, the wild animals of the forest begin an assault of their own, overwhelming the humans and giving Jake the opportunity to deflect the bomber and save the Tree of Souls. But on the ground, Colonel Colrich is in a mech suit and fighting hand-to-hand with Natiri. She gets pinned, and she tags Jake in. Jake and the Colonel struggle, and Jake's human body becomes exposed to the toxic Pandoran air, disabling his avatar. Natiri frees herself and kills Colrich with a double tap of arrows. The Navi oversee the expulsion of humans from their planet, leaving them free from imperialism. Jake successfully transfers his consciousness into his avatar body permanently. He awakes a hero in a new world. The end. At least for now, right? Because we know that the sequel's yeah. coming. But we'll, That's right. we'll, end, uh, we'll, we'll begin our analysis with the end of this movie uh, by talking about our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about Avatar? This movie is... It feels important. (laughs) That's the best way to describe it. Uh, It's a story for the ages. It's a modern day epic. Uh, Pandora, it's so real. It feels so real. The animals, the plants, the Navi, all of it looks amazing. And it just feels like you could reach out and touch it. um, And like it's just within grasp. It's amazing. Uh, The CGI, like I said, looks it looks pretty good. Um, I've, I'm a little curious what you think about how the motion capture like holds up today, but the all the facial expressions and everything. I, at very at the very first time I saw it, like uh, rewatching it, looked a little bit uncanny. But then uh, as it went on, it just became more and more natural, and I just stopped even looking for it because it, it was so seamless. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's amazing how James Cameron is telling this like really complicated story with all of these allegories and you know messages that are thrown in there and kind of pieced together like a giant patchwork quilt but it's it's also based on this sci-fi concept um it, it's it's really doing both things at once in a really amazing uh, way and uh, i just think it's also really incredible if you can make a movie where the humans are the bad guys and when the humans start 
dying, people cheer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, I think this is a really creative sci-fi idea. I I love this, like uh, the, the concept of the avatars and the planet of Pandora are just really well executed. I feel like I'm transported to a real place. Uh, you know, it's very easy to get immersed in this world and want to explore all that it has to offer. This is, it has that movie magic. Like there's just something that seeps out of, uh, the world this movie takes place in that is unlike anything else. And, um, and that really sticks with me. It had been such a long time since I'd seen this movie, but when I watched it again, I was like, ah, this is a familiar place. I, Pandora did have a big kind of impact on me as like a fictional planet that I feel like I've actually been to and spent time on. So I, I think that is really impressively done. Um, this movie, uh, definitely, is upfront about some of the messages that it has. And I agree with those messages. <laughs> and uh, so that's fun. Like, I like that. <laughs> um, I can agree with this movie. Uh, S- Stephen Lang is great as the Colonel. I oh, yes. really, He's such a good villain. His, his performance was fantastic. This is another example of James Cameron putting like space military uh, on screen in a way that is just badass and uh just memorable uh, this is this is such a great movie to watch right after watching aliens 2 uh or sorry aliens uh because aliens. uh you get more badass military space marine kind of uh, action so i love that uh the special effects have aged good not great and i think the way that you described it is exactly how i felt when we first got to see the avatars in motion they're in a room with humans and i'm like uh, they don't look real compared to the humans. The humans look real. The, the avatars look weird. A little bit weird. They look, still look fine. Yeah. But as the movie progressed, we had way more avatars existing within the g- green screen world of Pandora. And it basically just becomes an animated movie at that point. And, and having the avatars against a green screen backdrop, that all looks fine. Like it's, It looks great even. So yeah. I, I think... For the most part, a movie that leans this hard on special effects uh, to still look this good this many years later, I think is an achievement, uh, which is why I put it in my pros. And then um, finally, there's a lot of good callbacks in this movie. Uh, It's like very well written and just tied together in a way that you watch it multiple times and you're like, oh, they said that before we even knew what that was going to mean. And then also it's like, oh, we talked about this at the beginning of the movie and now it's coming back again. And you know, I love that in a movie. It feels like they don't waste your time on anything. This is a long movie. There's a lot in there. Uh, and, and but again, they they try to uh, make it worth it to because the things that you see early on will come back around. Uh, so I thought that was pretty good. Now let's talk about cons. What did you not like about Avatar? Um, I think that there's so much focus on Pandora and the world that your supporting characters hardly get anything. You've got Natiri. You've got Jake Sully. You've sort of got Grace Augustine, and then you've got uh, Colonel Colrich, whose name is too hard to remember. Yes. <laughs> so it's not <laughs> easy for you to remember his name or like anything that's distinct about him besides maybe what he looks like. He looks like the guy for, uh, or the, the uh, action figure from Small Soldiers. Yes, he does uh, look like Chip Hazard. <laughs> <laughs> he looks exactly like Chip Hazard. He's battle damaged Chip Hazard. Dude, wait, especially when he has the knife when he's like in the mech suit and it pulls out the big knife. That's just yeah. like when Chip battle damaged Chip Hazard pulls out the knife when he's on top of the telephone pole fighting Archer. I'm glad you caught That's that right. reference. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly what that is. Um, yeah, so uh, I think, you know, I think uh, making the decision to focus more on Pandora was probably the right choice, but 
uh, you don't get a lot of memorable characters other than that um, because they're they're so kind of few and far between. Um, and the whole thing kind of feels rushed. There's a lot of just kind of quick movement from one place to another. There's a lot of things to explain in this movie, which which is something you're going to go over uh, in detail. Um, so it's kind of complicated to get to the point where you have to, where like the plot can start, uh, sort of like True Lies. But um, <laughs> there's a lot to there's a lot to do, so it has to go fast. And even though the movie is two hours and forty minutes long, it still feels like some parts are rushed. Um, and and finally, my last. Uh, con is why do they cut out the part where Natiri and Jake Sully uh, bond um, while, while they're having hot alien sex? That's my favorite part. That's the thing I think about all the time. Why did they cut that out? Come on. Let's, let's be weird. You know, everyone knows it was weird. Everyone's talking about how weird it is. You should stay, you should stay in the movie. Let it be weird. <laughs> I'm just glad you? they had it in the cinematic cut when we saw it as kids, right? In our and there's no way I'm going to forget that. That's one of the most memorable things ever from that movie. um yeah so so some of my cons uh while i do agree with a lot of what this movie is saying and and like what i'm gleaning from it as the message i do think it's heavy-handed at times uh which kind of i think makes the message less compelling or maybe less uh convincing maybe to anybody who you're trying to change their mind of maybe that's not the point of this movie um but i think we do see that kind of uh the the reaction to that in a lot of pe- a lot of people's problems with this movie again i like what they're saying so it's not that's not the issue it's that i feel like sometimes they're kind of slapping you across the head with it uh that i think takes away a little bit from the message and i think we'll have a lot of time to talk about that kind of thing uh trudy specifically i agree that the supporting characters don't have enough to say or or really develop in real characters at all but trudy has way more lines then I feel like she's earned, and also they're <laughs> so cringe. Um, and I have examples, so we'll talk about that as well. And then finally, at times I felt like this movie thought that I was too stupid to keep up, and they explicitly state things and explain things in ways that makes me feel like duh, uh, and which is frustrating to me. And I and I agree with what you're saying. There's a lot to be done. It does feel a little bit rushed at times, where they'll sacrifice the plot for like getting you to like really get to experience this world of Pandora. So it's like, it's hard to be perfect, but uh, again, those are kind of, those are my problems with it. And we'll get into that a little bit more in the overall section, which we'll start right now with this quote. When I was lying there in the VA hospital with a big hole blown through the middle of my life, I started having these dreams of flying. I was free. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. So at this point, Jake opens his eyes and there's blue light all around him. And rewatching this after watching the movie, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. Like the, the first time I watched it, I'm like, this all sounds very meaningful, but like doesn't actually mean anything to me directly because I just started this movie. I don't know what's going on. But like talking about having dreams of flying, like you can kind of jump from that and be like, oh, like maybe this was some sort of like uh, like like his uh, predetermination or uh, he's like predetermined to become a was kind of like servant or like chosen one so like this is where his journey really began and then 
also uh, having to wake up and like opening his eyes. And that's something that happens constantly. They have this idea of like one life ending, another one uh, beginning. So it's like, what does waking up even mean? Does that mean like realizing that like your current life is not good, you need to make changes or waking up as another avatar? Like there's so much uh, like that these few lines at the very beginning uh, bring. And, uh, and it's just like at that moment, I realized like we're in for another James Cameron epic. Like this, this movie truly is epic in the true sense. And I, I love pointing out the true sense because epic is one of my favorite words <laughs> and I rarely use it to mean what it actually means. Um, but then you, you know, you have him get out into this zero gravity area after cryosleep, which looks really cool. So sci-fi. And then we get onto this wondrous wildlife on uh, Pandora, which we've already talked about feels so real. And then you have these giant man-made machines that destroy everything in sight. It is very pretty to look at. It's very memorable. This is a fun movie to watch. Like absent of any sort of meaning behind it, this movie looks awesome and it's it's just it, it's badass. And like we talked about earlier, it even has a message. Like the the book that Grace picks up when she's in the abandoned school is the Lorax by Dr. <laughs> Seuss, you know? And that's obviously intentional because the main conflict of this movie is basically like nature versus man's unstoppable greed and industrialization and i think this message is conveyed very clearly almost too clearly at times that it comes across as heavy-handed but as a person who believes that protecting our environment is more important than ever increasing profits in a capitalist system i enjoy having my beliefs reinforced on a television screen okay that's easy (laughs) for me to get on board with I okay, we talked about this before, and I don't necessarily see the value of subtlety in something like this. Yeah. Right? It's like, why leave it up for people to interpret when you are trying to say something very clear? Especially something that um you want a large number of people to agree with and to understand, right? Because it's not hard to make the argument that environmentalism is like a noble cause or like that. It's something that we should like we should be preserving natural spaces in our world or, you know, having more wildlife, uh, you know, in our like personal lives, but also just like being able to access nature uh, easily and being able to be a part of it and understand how the earth grows and works like all of that stuff is uh, obvious, obviously important because we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be able to survive without those delicate systems operating correctly. So it is much, much harder to make the case that environmentalism is stupid, in my opinion. Uh, it's, it's a long, like, there's, there's a long thread that you can pull and there's a lot of conditioning that's in place that allows people to fall into that trap. But I think that um, what is seen, I think what you're saying is, is heavy handed. I think is just the obvious message that is easy to hammer home because of how obvious it is. Um, uh, people making the case the other way have to jump through so many hoops uh, uh, saying that like, oh, we don't actually have to, have to care about the environment um, when there's so much evidence in your just lived experience that says the opposite. Sure. And, and I think uh, 
this kind of reminds me of the discussion we had in Don't Look Up, where it's like, okay, yes. but you're so clearly wrong. Like, why even appeal to the people who have the wrong opinion? Um, and I think that, yeah, the like, uh, if you want to talk about the results of like making an argument, I, I don't know which one is more effective. But I think, it, like, comparing the way that they uh, display the the corporate guy in this movie versus the corporate guy in, you know, say Aliens, um, I think it's not as clear to me that the guy's thought process is wrong uh, from like a objective point of view because somebody else who is like, I believe that human life is completely more valuable than any other life out there. Uh, you could make that claim through like religion or just by like not thinking about it very hard and being like, well, obviously <laughs> humans are better. Um, and then uh, I don't know how much they do to dispel that idea they just kind of don't even consider it they're just like you to think else like otherwise would just be completely ridiculous um when i think a movie like aliens does a better job of saying it's like okay if you think that court like uh doing this money driven thing is the most important thing you're actually destroying yourself um avatar you could if you were really cynical be like no we should go mine the crap out of this moon on the nexus glass giant and get out of there that's how we do stuff that is the best way to do it and the fact that we even gave these blue people humanity at all is a mistake right and and like obviously this movie does a lot to make that a more compelling argument but i could see somebody getting into this and being like oh totally ridiculous that they would even consider the navi to be people well, I think that's really, I think it's really interesting you say that because I think that it is interesting the difference between Burke, Carter Burke in Aliens and uh, Parker Selfridge in uh, Avatar. Uh, these two are, these are almost identical characters in many ways. They even sort of look similar. Um, and they're both arguing with Sigourney Weaver all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Parker Selfridge at least kind of, like has sort of a different kind of evil about him. He's not he's not as explicitly bloodthirsty as the colonel is, right? He sort of has this like idea that maybe there's a way we could work this out, right? Like, oh, we could get what we want and they can have what they want as well. But I think that it's a mistake to recognize that as anything other than evil because it's the banality of capitalism that is the thing that's like most um the apathy that's there as the most sinister not the explicit like thing and i think if you believe that like if you come into this movie believing that peter selfridge has a point and then by the end don't see how he's wrong and how what he was perpetuating is the heart of the evil then i think you fall into the same trap that uh rain hand uh, salam who wrote for forbes back in 2009 did and i'll read, I'll read an excerpt from his article he said the irony of Avatar is that Cameron make, has made a dazzling, gorgeous indictment of the kind of society that produces James Cameron's. In a sense, capitalism is the villain of Avatar. Yet, what Cameron fails to understand is that capitalism represents a far more noble and heroic way of life than that led by the Navi. Entrepreneurial societies are in a deep sense better than other societies because they give everyone an opportunity to learn, discover, and explore, and to change the world around us. He's he grates against the idea that capitalism is the enemy, even though that's basically what this movie is all about, is that Peter Selfridge and his operation is what's causing the misery and the central conflict on Pandora. 
Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I totally agree with that as well. Like, I, I guess I'm not trying to make the case that the message here is wrong. Um, but I guess, uh, I guess it's just like how they make that message. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that it's not effective either, but I guess I would, I still feel like it does come across as a little bit heavy handed, uh, in the sense that it jumps to its own conclusion from the beginning. And I guess you're right. You could give yourself a chance to watch the whole movie and then decide if the, the message is strongly conveyed, which I think it is. Um, but, uh, so yeah, that's yeah. kind of how I feel about that. Capitalism definitely is the enemy in this movie because we've got the humans who are less capitalism pilled, uh, the scientists who are able to coexist with the Navi as well at the end there. Um, that's they right. get to stay. But I have I have a couple I have a couple other issues with this movie, uh, and they're mainly bad dialogue and exposition. Um, so let's let's start with exposition with this quote. This is why we're here, unobtainium. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. That's the only reason. It's what pays for the whole party. It's what pays for your science. Comprendo? Now those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war, and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. So use what you've got and get me some results. Comprendo? Okay. <laughs> are we supposed to believe that Dr. Grace doesn't know what unobtainium is? Now, are we supposed to believe that any of this information is news to her? Like, this exposition dump was so poorly disguised as dialogue that it totally broke the immersion for me. I was fully present on the planet Pandora, and then all of a sudden I was back in my podcast studio wearing sweatpants and slippers. Like, it's, <laughs> this isn't the only time, too. Like, this movie does a good bit of exposition dumping. Like, here's, here's our heroes setting up the climactic battle with some exposition. We're screwed. <laughs> And I was hoping for some sort of tactical plan that didn't involve martyrdom. We're going up against gunships with bows and arrows. I have 15 clans out there. It's over 2,000 warriors. We know these mountains. We fly them. You fly them. They don't. Their instruments won't work up here. Missile tracking won't work. They'll have to fire line of sight. If they bring the fight to us, then we have the home field advantage. You know he's gonna commit that bomber straight to the Tree of Souls. Yeah, I know. They get to the Tree of Souls, it's over. That's their direct line to Awa, their ancestors. They'll destroy him. Well, I guess we better stop him. So, uh, like, I feel like most of the stuff that they said in that exchange was information that we had already seen in this movie. And we should, as an audience, be held responsible for retaining that. It, it like, reminds me of when you're getting, you're, like, in the battle prepping uh, time in a video game right before a big battle. And you've got Norm over there who's like, if they get to the Tree of Souls, it's all over. Make sure you protect the Tree of Souls. Right, we can't says lose like, oh, the tree every, of souls. Every time you load up the game, like <laughs> yeah. it just says, it says the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and like if you walk away from him and then walk back to him, he'll be like, "We have to make sure we protect the tree of souls. That's the most important <laughs> thing. If we, if that, uh, if that gets destroyed, the mission is over. You know, and it's like, okay, I, obviously that's how you lose at this mission. Um, right. So 
it just made me feel like the movie didn't think that I was very intelligent uh, having watched it. And because, and, again, they also talked about how in the Flux Vortex, the technology doesn't work. And that's like very clear. And I just felt like when they go and explicitly state things again to be like, remember, this is how things are about to work in the scene you're about to watch. It, it was like makes me roll my eyes and think that the the movie doesn't think I'm very intelligent. What do you think? I feel like the like, I don't know, maybe I'm being cynical, but I also these scenes in particular took me out of it. They didn't, they, I, I had a similar experience, maybe not as severe. I definitely when Norm says over and over again that they have to protect the street of souls, <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, but when they, uh, it, but and then when they're explaining the unobtainium and everything, like, I, I'm just like, okay, you know, this is a movie uh, still. This is still very much a movie. And when you're making, we talk about this whenever we watch a Christopher Nolan movie, whenever there is any sort of dialogue or anything plot driven, it makes sense for you you to put it in there more than once because yes. there are people that are going to the bathroom, people who are talking during the movie, people that are on their phones, they're not paying attention. So if you want to try to catch as many people as possible, you got to remind them of what's going on. Um, and some people just don't you know, pay attention very well. So it, it, it's like it's a necessary part of making a blockbuster movie, an accessible movie, is having pieces like this. Um, it is a little annoying, but I'm like, I don't know. I think about this movie in such a unique way because everyone in the world saw it. <laughs> like every single person I know watched this movie at the same time. And like when it came out in theaters, every person and it made so much money. It was like, you know, it was a top grossing movie for a really long time, basically until the MCU came, came along. And the reason for its success you can't say that these little things aren't helping, right? Catching all of those people are in there. And when you have a movie like Avatar that is so explicitly talking about the world that it currently exists in and what we maybe should do about it, I love that it's trying to catch as many people in a trawling net as possible. You know, it's dragging the ocean, uh, catching porpoises and whales in, the, in its wake, <laughs> dragging up all this silt and destroying the ecosystem it's going through. It's like, it's completely disrupting people's notion of what a movie is and giving people something that they haven't seen basically in decades, you know? it's And so I appreciate this movie for being, for its wide appeal. And these scenes like this only sort of reinforce that feeling about it. Fair enough. Uh, and then finally, let's get to the cringe dialogue. And honestly, the main offender here is Trudy. To me, it feels like her character got more screen time and dialogue than necessary solely because she's played by Michelle Rodriguez. And don't get me wrong. I like Michelle Rodriguez, but almost every line she says in this movie feels scripted as hell. She's got bangers like oops after she drives by and shoots at the colonel or she flies by and shoots at the colonel and also you're not the only one with a gun bitch uh, <laughs> along with max trudy feels like a one-dimensional side character that exists to help move the plot along mainly by piloting the helicopter but the movie wants us to treat her like a full-on character uh when she died i was impressed that the movie was going to kill a character with a name uh, but I was also unimpressed because I realized that was all we were going to get from Trudy, a character I hadn't yet found a reason to care about. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. But um, <laughs> this movie feels like um, aliens, aliens too, right? It, it, like, there's so many things about it that's like aliens. And it's also, but like Michelle Rodriguez is clearly from the 
uh, Fast and Furious franchise. Yes. <laughs> like she just like got like swept up into this somehow. Like like the vortex of like blockbuster movies like somehow like sucked Michelle Rodriguez right out of the Fast <laughs> franchise into Avatar into, into Aliens too. Yeah, and I get that, and I I think I'm starting to pick up on kind of the the mass appeal that Avatar was going for, and notably achieved okay so it's right. like it's one thing to 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 uh, pander to the masses it's another thing to actually win them over um so I, I guess i have to i have to give them credit for that but yeah i think she's a big example of that max also his most iconic line in the movie was like okay because <laughs> when they yes. were leaving prison they're like no max stay behind we need to have somebody here and he goes okay <laughs> that's it like he just helped them break out of prison and that's that's all he got out but it, you know, the, uh, so the, yeah, I guess that was another thing that um, I think suffers from this movie having so much to do uh, and not wanting to be longer than it ended up being because it still is Absolutely. a very, very long movie. And and the next thing, continuing on with kind of the storytelling of this, I, I'm interested to get your opinion on this. Video logs feel like a cheap way to have your characters say exactly how they're feeling. This movie does kind of justify their inclusion because the colonel watches Jake's video logs and that helps him come to the conclusion that they'll have to use war, that there's no other way around uh, getting the Navi to, to move. But other than that, it kind of feels cheap to me. So is it cheating to have your characters explicitly state how they're feeling to the camera? So it started off as narration, right? Like it starts, like the movie is peppered with narration from uh you know from sam worthington yes um he's from the very beginning and then at the end too there's it's kind of bookended with this and there's pieces in between where he's narrating and it's not clear that what he's narrating is part of the video log it's adding flavor to what we're watching right this is supposed to be from his point of view and his account of everything um so it's um, I don't know. I I don't necessarily mind narration. I don't think it's necessarily the like the worst decision. It does feel sort of cheap, but like uh, I like having a little bit of you know flavory like um, language in there. A, a Greek chorus, if you will, isn't necessarily the worst way to describe what's going on, and um, that it sort of feels like a, an extension of that. And then the fact that the video logs are used in the plot, like that is part of it is them being like, oh, we know what's going on because Jake has been recording himself, you know, telling us all this stuff. Um, I think lends it some credence. Um, and so, like, I don't know, for both of those reasons, it wasn't something that really stood out to me. It just was sort of unusual because usually there's a lot less emphasis on stating exactly what people are thinking and way more emphasis on, like, showing that. Right. Right. Um, like I'll give you an Again. example when Jake is like I I'm like my the it's starting to blend together and I'm not sure who I am anymore and it's like obviously that's part of his transformation to becoming a full on Navi like he is right. eventually at the end of this movie he will be no longer human at all and completely be Navi but he says that when I think it would be more compelling to have him I don't know like not answer to jake when somebody says like hey jake and and he's like oh or like he tries to use his legs that he doesn't have you know and like falls down because he thinks that he can use you know what i'm saying something where it's like wow that is really happening and not just him being like this is how i'm feeling right now right 
No, I think that's definitely true. And narration also shortens your movie too because it's you don't have to do as much work uh, to uh, on screen. You don't have to set up anything or show anything necessarily. You can just have it sh- like talking over the back of it. So, um, you know, it's it's an accessibility question as well. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I I think you're you're uh, starting to sway me on this because it doesn't feel um, like I feel like it adds something to the movie, but it's not its best characteristic for sure. Sure. Um, I have one more thing and then we can move on to actually like talking about what this movie is saying, which I think is definitely the main point of what we're going to discuss today. But the quintessential question that has come across, uh, you know, with, with people I've talked to this movie about, uh, is, is this movie space Pocahontas? Okay. And I have an answer and then I'd like to hear your answer. Okay. I say it's no, it's not Space Pocahontas. Well, it does have a colonist and a native falling in love. Uh, and like the colonists are defiling nature for money. Uh, and it also has a tree of wisdom. <laughs> so like the list is actually starting to grow pretty long here. Um, that's pretty much <laughs> where the similarities end. I think Pocahontas tries to preserve both sides of the conflict and pin like all malintent on the leader of the colonist who you know gets his comeuppance at the end and then everyone is happy uh avatar very clearly pins this all on one side and says one side is good and one side is completely bad and wrong uh so i i think that while it's a fun little meme uh it doesn't actually hold water what do you think i mean po- let's not stop at pocahontas you know this movie is also space dances with wolves and uh <laughs> the last Mohicans and last samurai it, it's all of it's even sort of space uh matrix <laughs> in some ways <laughs> um so like it's not um it, i don't know it's it's not very um it's not a news story necessarily uh but it doesn't necessarily have to be a news story there's there are like several things that are great about avatar the first thing is the setting and the special effects pandora and the Navi and all of that are just unmatched by anything that's come before or after, um, as far as like completeness of a world, you know, um, even something like Star Wars, which has this a very rich, expanded l- literacy, was is built up by the collective, not by a single person's insane mind, namely James Cameron, right? Uh, and uh, the other thing is that I think it has a really important message that I think resonates with people on a deep level and i don't think that these other movies i've mentioned come close to that those movies are certainly entertaining but they're not um you know resonating at that same level so it's it's sort of a matter of degree right you can you can take the a lot of stories are similar and you can take the framework for something and then make something amazing from it and i think that's where avatar shines through uh above the the rest you know and i think it's fun to be like oh it's just like this but then you have to ask yourself like why is that a problem exactly you know is is that is like pure originality really the only characteristic you care about (laughs) you know like there are lots of other ways to do things and you can argue that people that make uh, the second thing, do it uh, better. <laughs> the iPhone, for example, was not the first example of like a touchscreen device, but it Apple did it in a way that was, you know, accessible and also uh, very attractive to lots and lots of people, which brought in like the smartphone revolution, you know? So it's not about doing it 
first. It's about doing it the best. And I think you can make a really good argument that Avatar does it better than anyone. I totally agree. And it's, I think this, uh, something I, I believe is very true is that art inspires art and that yes. you don't, like, even if you come up with something that's very novel, you likely have some influences that got you there. Uh, so to, to hold it against a work that it was inspired or has qualities of other great works, I think is, is, um, intentionally uh like missing the forest for the trees so uh yeah good pandora reference yeah and i mean there, <laughs> um james cameron has has explicitly said that this movie that avatar was inspired by other movies um there's actually an article from where is it from business insider from 2012 where that cites um several of these uh chrysalis mother wind warriors xenogenesis uh, these are all uh, movies that have uh, examples of people going to nature or uploading their consciousness into different things. Um, these were explicit references or um, inspirations for Avatar. And I mean, James Cameron has talked about how he loves Starship Troopers, and that's why he sort of made aliens aliens, right? So, like this, there's this long line of uh, of things. And and actually read somewhere that James Cameron watching 2001 like he was so captivated captivated by that film and how it was made that it led him toward becoming a filmmaker because he was trying to capture he said he's been trying to capture that feeling of watching 2001 ever since because it was so amazing to see something on screen that was basically just from someone's imagination um so uh yeah you can't you can't really move forward without uh respecting people that came before i think i think that's an important thing to do absolutely it's uh you know I would even say that this movie feels kind of influenced by Aliens, which is you know James Cameron's even his own work. Uh, you could I, I I mean this is kind of a aside, but I, I kind of felt like these movies could take place in the same universe. Uh, I thought so too. <laughs> I thought I thought Grace Augustine was very Ripley like, right? Um, uh, you know she's like the way that she acts and everything, the fact she's like she's kind of like hardened, hard boiled and stuff. She's not quite as like tough as Ripley. Um. Uh, and she's sort of been like, I don't know, cowed by the situation she's in. She's not like as radical as 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 Jake is, but um, it, it certainly feels similar in so many ways. I mean, the cryo sleep alone, and then going to a, a planet full of people uh, that are like you know aliens that are out there to destroy humans, and like the planet in it itself and the the natives are explicitly hostile toward humans. Right? It does feel like aliens but sort of flipped it's like aliens but then james cameron was like you know actually maybe the meta maybe the aliens should be the good guys <laughs> yeah no totally i'm glad we're watching these movies together they feel like they pair very well they really do okay so i want to talk about metaphors and avatar because i think that's an important element of this um, there's a quote from James Cameron, which I found from VOA News, and he said, it, weighs, it raised awareness of the issues. Of course, the film is a fantasy, says Cameron. It doesn't really educate. It creates a kind of emotional framework or context for a dialogue which follows from the film. I've sort of seen mixed signals from Cameron on this, like, oh, the film is explicitly political, it's explicitly about this. Or, no, it's not really, it's more of an emotional journey kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, the author is dead, so it's up to us to decide who, um, uh, how to interpret this film. The, 
I think that way he says it here, there's an emotional framework for context or dialogue is really important because uh, you hear this on the on the internet all the time, especially if you frequent any sort of debate circle. You can't change people's, you can't reason someone out of a position that they didn't reason this way into, right? And if you're trying to make an appeal uh, in any any direction for anything, you can't forget the emotional appeal. People aren't just people aren't logic machines. People aren't computers. You have to make it an emotional appeal. And I think that Avatar does a really good job of making that emotional appeal more than it does anything else. Um, I think the heavy-handed message of it makes it clear where it's trying to go, but ultimately it's trying to make you feel something. And I think you are hard pressed to find someone who didn't feel something watching this movie. Maybe afterward uh, they were like, "Oh, it's Space Pocahontas," and that makes me feel <laughs> stupid. But the the, the but. You know, while you were in the theater, like watching it with people, I I can't imagine you not having some sort of emotional reaction from it. And it's there's lots and lots of accounts of people cheering, clapping during this movie, loving this movie, and um, the fact that it's like basically still making money through like uh, um, like residual sales is uh, proof that it has some sort of effect, even if it's sort of been muted in the public consciousness. Um, many people have argued uh, what Avatar is really about. What are the metaphors at play here? Is Cameron being explicitly political or is he sort of half hiding behind the curtain, throwing things out and hoping they'll stick and then hiding behind, uh, shut up, it's just a movie when it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I, I think Avatar is brilliant and I will die on that hill. Please, at me, if you dare. A- Avatar is amazing. It's everything film should be, but it's not perfect. The story references many different indigenous cultures and calls to specific moments in recent history but i think all of that is just paint on the canvas it all swirls together and if you try to look at it as a perfect metaphor or allegory for anything in history you miss the, p- the point completely avatar for me is not about the far future or about history it's about right now how do we feel right now it's a hypothetical and i think it's asking a really hard question to answer seriously it's so easy to get lost in the weeds on purpose or not because it's so hard to answer this question and the question is, do other people have inalienable rights? So from this springs many other questions, like do other people have something valuable to teach us? Has technology and our fear of nature caused us to lose something essential about being human? What are the consequences of separating ourselves from our birthplace and pretending we are separate or superior to Mother Earth? But fundamentally, Avatar is asking us, the audience, if a tragedy like the one being carried out in Pandora was happening right now, Whose side would you be on and why? This is a really hard question to take seriously because so much of our current lives are wrapped up in comforts that come from the exploitation of the earth and other people. I saw a shower thought on Reddit this morning that was like, with a click of a button, I can set into motion a chain of human misery. Uh, unfathomable. <laughs> like, that's unfathomable. Uh, like, talking about like ordering stuff online or like, uh, like perpetuating any sort of these like, uh, per- like uh, predatory companies or apps that like prey on people's um like independent thoughts or whatever um for for me as a like a meat eater i i think that this idea i struggle i struggle with this a lot the convenience of meat makes it difficult to stop eating it it's everywhere it's in everything if you go to any restaurant you it's very difficult to get something on the menu that doesn't have meat in it um and i 
eat meat knowing that I'm contributing to some sort of the worst, some of the worst suffering ever devised. Torture and pain on a scale so terrifying, it could only be conceived by a truly apathetic force like capitalism. If you were trying to be evil, I don't think you would go this far. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. As a Amazon Prime subscriber, someone who just bought this movie on Amazon, I struggle with the fact that if I want my stuff fast, it comes at the cost of dignity of other people. People that are forced to work in sterile, humanless warehouses where they're monitored by machines and fired for the most inane reasons. And as a person of upper middle class privilege, there are hundreds of ways my life is propped up by a system fueled by blood and spits out comfort. We stay, stray further and further from each other and become more and more isolated and adrift because it's easier not to fight it. It's easier to just let things keep going. Does it, does it feel like I'm straying from my point? Because I promise that I'm not. The point I'm trying to make here is that every day we can choose to destroy ourselves or to help others. We can be Colonel Colrich or Peter Selfridge, indulging and profiting from exploitation. Or we can be Jake Sully and put our lot in with the exploited. It doesn't necessarily end in the overthrow of a system, but if that's what it takes, well... We are not the indigenous Navi, nor are we the invading humans. We are both, or maybe either. We can choose what kind of people we want to be. And let's return to Cameron uh, for the last word on this. The Navi represent that sort of aspirational part of ourselves that wants to be better, that wants to respect nature, while the humans in the film represent the more venial versions of ourselves, the banality of evil that comes with corporate decisions that are made out of the removal of consequences. Yeah, it's a really tough question to ask ourselves what we would do, uh, especially when there's so many real life similar situations going on. Like, uh, uh, like unobtainium makes me think of uh, rare minerals that are used for our cell phones. Where, Cobalt, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, yeah, there's definitely some suffering going on there. And it's <laughs> not just from people who have to work in the mines. It's also from people who live on top of where those things are found, who have their lives totally uprooted and, and, and uh, you know, displaced because they want something underneath them. And, uh, you know, it certainly isn't going to stop me from using my phone. So maybe I've already answered that question. You know, I'm willing to pay top dollar to get access to this. And uh, but I think that's, a, see, that's what I think is a mistake. And I think is to, is to think that you've already answered this question, right? Every day you have a choice between whether you have answered this question one way or the other, right? And there's no reason why you couldn't change your mind right now, you know? And that's the thing. Like you can, I think that's something that's powerful about uh, human uh, behavior is this idea of inertia. The thing that you are currently doing, you are more likely to just keep doing. If you're laying in bed on your phone, it's much easier to keep laying in bed on your phone than to get up and do something productive, you know? And when you're doing something productive, it's actually easier to keep being productive than it is to sit down and be on your phone. It's not that the phone is easier, it's that what you're currently doing is easier. And you can answer, you can say the same thing about any sort of decision you make, right? Oh, I've already answered this question. I've already decided that I'm not going to fight this fight. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can choose to, to be different right now. And there's nothing to stop you. Um, you know, one life ends, another begins. Just because you stop being something doesn't mean you can't be something else. No, that's, de that's definitely powerful. Um, I just think, yeah, there's a lot more than just being like, I'm going to stop using my phone. It's like, I'm going to have to untangle my life from all of these. <laughs> it's, it's almost impossible, right? It feels impossible. But it's not, it's not really out of reach. It's just something difficult to kind of wrestle with right and there's no way you can be perfect about it right there's no way you can you can get all the way through this but there's there's certain things you can't change 
at all, right? And you have to learn to accept that. But there are small things, right? And and what I think the important thing to recognize is that these opportunities exist and that it's not just, it doesn't have to just be like this. You can change the way that it is, right? You can push back against those forces within you and without you that um, are working to destroy us. I, I think that if anything, what I've taken away from like the last few years, watching our nation become more politically divided, you know, watching the rise of, uh, you know, right-wing extremism in, in this country and just kind of the slow erosion of human rights as well. Um, and just like the way, the, the, the thousands and thousands of ways that we are killing ourselves. And, you know, it's clear to me that uh, this is not human nature on its own, right? We are not inherently good or inherently evil. We have both of these things within ourselves and we can choose which direction we want to go. We have to actively act to better, to reinforce and to um, encourage our better parts of our nature, right? We have, this is something we hear all the time. Humans have a incredible, like incredible capabilities for evil and for good. Um, you know, you see this all the time, any sort of natural disaster or something. So many people come together to help uh, these people that are affected by it. And, um, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, you know, sacrificing so much to help other people. And um, if we encourage that kind of behavior more, then we're going to see a better world. It's not that we are inherently one way or the other. It's that we have both of these paths we can go down and we have to choose one or the other. Yeah, I guess it's important not to remove all agency from yourself to say that it is the way that it is and I'm I it has already been decided and to consider right. the opportunity to make the make that change. I think that's part of being an adult, right? Is deciding where that line is for you and in making the decision one way or the other, right? And obviously there are some things that you could do but uh, would be too much effort and wouldn't be worth the like the effort you put in. And there are other things that um, would be simple that you could just do tomorrow, right? And it's not um, to say like, oh, like you're a bad person for not doing these things. It's it's way more that like w- consider it, like consider what you're what you're putting into the world and which side of this you are pushing forward, right? And if you were put into a situation. What, like a decision uh, right at the crux where Jake Sully was, like, where would you fall on that line? Where would that crisis go for you? Would you go, give up everything to save others um, or would you continue to try to destroy yourself? Um, okay, so there's another thing I want to talk about with this movie, and I think this is a, um, a pretty damaging um, criticism of Avatar, um, but I think it's worth exploring. So I've seen lots of reviews saying that Avatar is a white savior myth. Basically, this is a trope where a white guy comes into a less technologically advanced society and leads them to victory, usually through some sort of epic battle. Um, This sort of thing shows up in movies a lot. Um, It's also really close to the chosen trope where a dude shows up and learns uh, to be the best at something despite not having trained nearly as long as people teaching him. Uh, Usually the person teaching him is a woman and they end up falling in love. Uh, The Matrix, the Lego movie, um, Wanted, all of those fall into the chosen uh, category. Um, uh, And it's always like it's always a freaking dude and he's always being trained by some hot girl who's like been doing this for years but he's like better than her. Um, So 
yeah, anyway. Um, so Avatar has both of these things uh, on display. But I think whether it actually crosses the line between being a white savior story is not is sort of up to, for debate. It's not clear to me. I'm not confident that it isn't a white savior story, but here are some things to consider. So first of all, Jake doesn't teach the Navi anything. So usually in the white savior story, a white guy protagonist will spend most of his time learning from the natives. And then he'll spend some time teaching the natives about his culture, usually to some, you know, endearing child or something. It's like, <laughs> oh, you know, uh, I, you know, I can make you a little hat or something or whatever. Like, oh, uh, let me teach you a, a catchphrase from the, from the English, um, you know, something like that. And and ultimately, like it's sort of a, a combination of those things that ends up making him successful, right? It's like his previous culture plus the new one that he's like uh, adapting. But in Avatar, um, that's not what happens. Actually, Jake says this. We have tried to teach all the sky people. It is hard to fill a cup which is already full. And then later on, um, which is another quote that we may play later, he says, uh, they don't want anything we have. Um, anything that they've offered, uh, anything the humans have offered the Navi, they have re rejected. Okay, we um, should play that quote, though, because I think there's more to it in, in that quote. I'd say we understand them just fine, thanks to Jake here. Hey, Doc, come take a look. They're not going to give up their home. They're not going to make a deal. For, for, for a light beer? <laughs> Blue jeans? There's nothing that we have that they want. Everything they sent me out here to do is a waste of time. They're never going to leave home tree. So I think the inclusion of blue jeans and light beer here is pretty directly pointing this at USA. Like this is not supposed to be... <laughs> Uh, you know, Earth or humanity in general is supposed Pizza. to be I mean, exactly. It's um, like Pizza what, and ramen, light beer, and yeah, uh, blue jeans, and you know, specifically, uh, yeah, well, f football. Honestly, though, did we offer them football? Did we get a chance to for have them consider football? There's basketball courts out there. That's true. Okay, so if they they probably well, Navi were pretty good at basketball since they're so so tall. They like. would definitely dominate on Earth because they're ten feet tall. They would just drop the ball in from above but um <laughs> but yeah i'm pretty sure they're pointing that i i just i don't know i felt like that was pretty upfront they're pointing this at it's like yeah this is an american thing we're criticizing here yeah um i think that's certainly i think it's funny but it's also like it feels real to me for some reason like like what exactly are they offering them and it, i think parker mentions earlier in the movie that like they offered a medicine or something and they and they didn't want it and I think that's a little surprising given the nature of disease, like at least our history with disease as humans, you know, we've something we've struggled with a lot. Um, and, but the Gaia-ness of Ewa, right? Like the entire like world of Pandora seems to be connected in a way that is beyond uh, just like, you know, their, their reference to the forest, right? It's it, as Grace says, uh, else like right before we're talking about this she says that it's not just a deity they're not just like worshiping some some like uh, made-up god they there's like something actually 
real. There's something, some sort of consciousness that they're touching, like physically, uh, in in the in the world. So it's possible to believe. It's possible to extrapolate that any sort of microorganisms are also part of this ecosystem, and that any sort of like disease or anything that comes down um, would be controlled by the world as well, right? It would be used simply as a culling mechanism and wouldn't be used as, it wouldn't be as like a way of wiping out uh, the Na'vi. But also at the same time, like the Na'vi have no um, incentive to expand the way that humans do, right? For the humans in this movie, they have every incentive to constantly be mining more planets and, and getting more stuff. They always need more resources to fuel their stuff. And uh, and the Na'vi don't have any of that need. They don't necessarily even need more of them, right? They're just like, we're happy with uh, however many we have, I guess. Right, and they, um, they're like, yeah. their consumption within their own ecosystem is kind of balanced out by this idea that uh, like they're very conscious of any sort of uh, taking of life, and right. uh, all these other things, like they're very intentional with the way they ina- interact with their environment, uh, because which is something they believe yeah. in this deity, but also the deity is like a giant living organism too. So they're just basically interfacing with something that is actually there. Right. It's more than just like the beliefs of the Native Americans who like had like forest gods and you know other things that they play- paid reference to. Um, this this is more than just like a religion. It's like an actual um like living thing that they are communicating with it's like a it's essentially a god because it created all this life right or is like a function of all this life um but it's not like extra planar like it's not out of this world it's like part of the world um so uh, it certainly like gives it um a reality that is uh i think difficult for humans to um especially the humans in this movie to uh, really appreciate. Right. And just to get back to what you were saying, yeah, they definitely, they don't want anything that Jake has to offer. They've got pretty dope shit going on, uh, even if yeah. it's not light beer and blue jeans. That's right. Um, so yeah, and further to that, like in the last battle, Jake has a gun that he uses, but it's really his Navi training and his Navi body that defeats the humans, not like necessarily human tactics right he's jumping onto the uh the plane and he's throwing grenades um but he's not necessarily like i think okay we're gonna do a tactical you know um we learned this in the marines like we're gonna come in like this or whatever he's he's using the environment and the resources that the navi have to defeat the humans um the other thing is uh, Jake isn't the best Navi. Uh, usually in a white savior story, our white hero will rise to the ranks, besting all others in whatever skill he's been tra- trained at. He starts off bad, but learns quickly. There's something about him. He's more tenacious, more dedicated, just hungrier. Um, <laughs> but when Jake gets his ICAN, the Banshee Dragon, he is doing it at the same time as other Navi teenagers. Like they're much smaller than he is. Um, and when he climbs to the top of the floating mountain, he's the only one out of breath. Everybody else is fine. Um, and then Jake does tame the Turok, which is, you know, the, something that had not been done in generations. Um, but this is sort of framed as reckless. Um, like, not that he's especially talented at it. He's just like, I'm going to try and do something crazy and see what happens, basically. And uh, one of Jake's most pers- persistent personality traits is that he is very, very brave. Um, see that over and over again demonstrated. So 
I don't know. I, I think that starts starts to hint toward the white saviorism a little bit. And then, of course, Jake also beds Natiri, who is basically a princess. So that definitely put a, put a, a strike in the white savior column uh, for that one as well. Um, Jake assembles the tribes to fight off the humans. And this one this seems to be contrary to what the Navi would have done had Jake not been there. Um, and he does make a bunch of speeches to convince people to fight with him, although he isn't really a white savior core. Uh, there isn't really a white savior corollary to this, I don't think, like in the traditional white savior myth. I think the fact that this is unusual for Navi feels very white savior-y uh, to me. But I want to kind of expand on this one point a little bit because Jake understands and knows humans. He has unique knowledge about the humans' plans to destroy Home Tree and then the Tree of Souls. He's also aware that if the humans succeed, they will just keep doing stuff like this over and over. He also knows that defeat in this moment will give the Navi political power at the negotiating table. He's a military guy and an American. He's seen this sort of thing play out on Earth numerous times. He's likely taken part in initiatives like this. I think that more than anyone else, Jake sees this battle to be pivotal to the future of Pandora, and therefore it makes sense that he takes center stage. Does that still make him a white savior? Perhaps, but it's not necessarily his whiteness or humanness that makes him successful in this. So I'm sort of torn on on this one point. Yeah, I think you've you taken a really good look at this and like have a nuanced stance on it because there's de- white savior qualities definitely are not absent from this situation, but uh, it's not so clear cut. Uh, such that he is just like kind of a chosen one. Although he is low key a chosen one because the tree like chooses him. Otherwise, he would be dead, uh, or at least his avatar would have been dead. But I feel like I have a pretty compelling argument against it being white savior because uh, he's most of the movie he's blue. So checkmate, (laughs) liberals. Uh, He's not a white savior. Definitely. Um, so there's a couple other things I wanted to touch on, uh, just James Cameron being, um, James Cameron, uh, in the, in the aftermath of this movie coming out, lots and lots of people were pissed off about Avatar. Um, and many of them, um, Cameron became aware of. So when asked by the Hollywood reporter, if you felt the white right wing's attacks against him were continuing, Cameron replied, they're not attacks. They're just people ranting away, lost in their little bubbles of reality, steeped in their own hatred their own fear and hatred. That's where it all comes from. Let's just call it out. Let's have a public discussion. That's what movies are supposed to do. You know, you can have a mindless entertainment film that doesn't affect anybody. I wasn't interested in that. Um, yeah, again, pointing to the emotional appeal that Avatar uh, makes here, um, I think is strong. Um, and he, in that same interview, he continues to say, look, at this point, I'm less interested in making money for the movie and more interested in saving the world that my children are going to inhabit. How about that? I mean, look, I didn't make this movie with those strong environmental anti-war themes in it to make friends on the right, you know? They're not on my Christmas card list, Cameron added. It's not going to change my lifestyle at all if they don't talk to me. But you know, they're not going to, they're going to, they've got to live in this world too. And their children do as well. So they're going to have to be answerable to this at some point. So, um, uh, like a couple things. Uh, so first of all, imagine being like, I'm not interested in making money talking about Avatar because it yeah, made was- so much money. It's like, well, imagine if you were interested in making money. <laughs> Um, but then the other thing too is like, I guess what were some of the attacks levied against this movie? Okay. So, cause what is he responding so, to? 
so specifically, he was responding to Glenn Beck went on a radio show and was talking about this for I think an hour or something. And then James Cameron was like, "Why is this guy on CNN at all? He should, you know, he should. I guess he's been moved to Fox News, which is more appropriate, I guess." Um, uh, basically, one of the major attacks on it um, was that it's anti-American. And actually, I have a, a quote from James Cameron. It said, "I've heard people say this film is un-American. Well, part of being an American is having the freedom to have dissenting ideas." Uh, which is from the rap. He, um, so yeah, the, the anti-military, uh, anti-capitalism, anti-American, um, all of those things uh, fall into it. You know, a a deference to the natives over, um, you know, the superior civilized humans. Um, I think rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But from what I can tell, a lot of these people. Um, are the kind of people that you kind of want to piss off. <laughs> like if you're making them upset, I think you're doing something right. And um, I think that it is certainly very interesting seeing the discussion of this, especially like right after the movie came out and then long afterward. I read this really long article on Wikipedia called Themes in Avatar. And it's basically just a huge list of all the different things that people have said this movie is about and uh, how it's like, it's supporting that, but it's also not supporting that. It's like it's going um, too far, or it's not going far enough, you know. And it, it's just, uh, it's really is kind of a Rorschach test. And I did in that article, they they do say um, some many people have quoted it as being an all-purpose allegory, uh, meaning that you can see almost anything you want uh, by what by by watching Avatar. Um, and I think that. <laughs> That's like it's such an interesting like way to to look at it because I think there's so many things that it's trying to say and I think there's a lot of things it says really really well and I think that it gives you enough for you to chew on to really talk about without um while still challenging you to be like this is what what's going on without like really diving into anything specific again I don't this movie has a a lot of calls to specific like specific things specific events in history but i don't think that's really the point of it it's supposed to i think it's supposed to take a more broader approach to be like this is uh this is about the human condition more than anything um and uh i think that's pretty i think that's a good way to 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 view this movie because again if you get into any of the weeds about it it doesn't work perfectly in any situation there was no situation where a warrior from the white Try, like the the white colonists joined with the Native Americans and defeated, um, you know the uh, the the invading white forces and drove them back to their you know original continent. You know there were cer- certain victories and there were people that defected, which I do want to talk about. But it didn't like it didn't culminate in like this epic, uh, you know, res- like pushback that is demonstrated in this movie. So you're not going to ever find a perfect allegory. Um, so I think it's just a waste of time to. Uh, be like, oh, it got this right, but like, it's not exactly like this, mm-hmm. so therefore it doesn't apply. Well, also this kind of thing where to say that it's un-American, and like, I guess you could say, uh, you know, it's explicitly anti light beer and blue jeans, but I, I think it's you're really uh, m- trying to monopolize the definition of what it means to be American to say this movie is anti-American because you have to define for yourself what it means to be American to begin with. Um, and it's possible that it's 
American to see the the correct course of action, even when that kind of goes against uh, historically what you've done. You know, so it's absolutely. So I, I, yeah, I, I reject that notion. Uh, so there, but I like, other... but I like that you said that this is like a Rorschach text uh, test because I agree. It's like if you see something in this movie that I disagree with, maybe you like it less, but it doesn't mean that I saw that too. Right. Yes. Exactly. So um, what's interesting is after that Forbes article came out um, from Rehan Salam, who I what I read earlier about the uh, pro, like saying that this movie is anti-capitalist and that. Cameron misses the point of capitalism. Uh, somebody also writing in Forbes, uh, Anne Marlowe, a self-declared like right-wing conservative, uh, wrote a response to him, uh, which I thought was really good. And she said, Rehan Salam condemned Avatar and Forbes as anti-capitalist and against innovation, which strikes me as equivalent to saying the Philadelphia story is against thrift. Lighten up. It's a fantasy. And since the Navi seem to have found a way to defeat death in some cases and send data using their minds intergenerationally, it's not clear that they need to take lessons from us in technology. What's interesting is why Salam feels so threatened by the non-capitalist Navi as opposed to other fantasy races on screen. And she continues to go on to continue to say, Avatar shows a man standing up for what is right, a quintessential American act in a context of beauty and wonder. And I mean, based, well, I think based I think we've take. talked about this uh, <laughs> uh, before, but like the description of American is so funny to me because it's really unclear of what an, like what American is, um, especially like something like American Psycho or American Horror Story. It's like, <laughs> oh, like what exactly is it that makes something American? So uh, I think that's the, Amer- the word American certainly has its fair share of social lubricant where you can say i'm an american and therefore people believe that you mean it, that they you agree with them um but that's uh i think i really like the definition of uh standing up for what is right uh uh in uh, even when it's hard i think is a uh a, a american um attribute that i'm proud to uh display and also um having the freedom to have dissenting ideas also i feel like is a a, a good American uh, trait as well, and I think uh, sticking to a free market economy and uh, you know ex- uh, <laughs> deposing the military to at the expense or for the um, intent of helping capital uh, certainly are American attributes, but ones that I wish weren't American attributes. Uh, so I think you can go either way with this. You could say, "Oh, this is an American film," or "This is an anti-American film." Um, depending on your definition of America. It's so true because you can say that freedom is a value of Americans. I feel feel like most people would uh, agree that we at least in principle agree that sure. freedom is is important. Whether we actually execute on that, it, you know, is is uh, you know definitely uh, varying levels of success there. But I would I would again as an American, my definition is I think we'd be more married to that than to some. Uh, economic organization of our society if we found a new way that had even more freedom in it then i'd think we would we would want that even more because we're so pro-freedom and maybe that's just my definition but but going back to what uh was said here about specifically their their technology yeah just because they're not using giant earth moving tanks doesn't mean that the navi aren't advanced they have yes. these complex networks that they've learned how to interact with uh how to uh and and that's 
that's plenty advanced as well. It's not like they're savages out there. They just have a different uh, build or a different setup for the way that they go about living. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's less advanced just because it doesn't have guns. The uh, two things come to mind. First of all, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there is a ranking of intelligence of different species. Uh, the, the most intelligent are mice. Uh, the second most intelligent are dolphins, and the third most intelligent are humans. And uh, the humans think that they're the most intelligent, um, especially because more than the dolphins, because they've built cities and roads and things. And dolphins feel that they're more intelligent for these same reasons, that they haven't built cities and roads and things. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, and the other thing is that for a long time, much longer than uh, I think a lot of people appreciate, we were, humans were very similar to the Navi, where we lived in nature in small tribes, like, you know, basically just hunter-gatherers in these sort of vastly different hierarchical, hierarchical and egalitarian uh, societies that have only, like, more recently been mapped uh, in, a, like, in any way. So we were doing that for, I don't know, like, uh, more than... 6,000 years, uh, probably close to 10,000 to maybe 100,000 years, we were uh, living like this. And it wasn't until we invented uh, agriculture that uh, we started building into the civilizations that we see today. And I think um, some people would argue that that was a mistake. <laughs> because <laughs> until recently, honestly, we haven't seen the benefits of agriculture in our own, like, um, uh, well-being basically because we had to work harder and got less of a varied diet and were like in some ways much more miserable after we started doing agriculture but at that point there became a population lock where we weren't able to we were making so much food that we couldn't go back otherwise we would just have to choose people to die essentially and that just wasn't acceptable so we would the only way forward was to keep making more and more until we were able to simulate comfort that we were we we had previously on a mass level. Um, and sure, you know, I think we probably were dying less, and you know, people are living longer and, and things like that. There's certainly ways that was working, but um, for a long, long time after we invented agriculture, that really wasn't the case. We were still suffering for a for a, for a lot of it. Um, so uh, you, it's hard to. I'm not saying like I want to go back, but like every time I think about like going back to like caveman times or even going back like 30 years uh, in time, I'm like I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I, think I, <laughs> I think I'm good here. <laughs> I think I'm the most comfortable I'd be now uh, than I would be uh, even like you know 50 years ago. So yeah, I mean this gets back to the myth of progress, right? It's like yeah. just because we were able to create more food, more it's like that. There's it's more complex than just saying like more food equal good. Uh, or you know the species that benefited the most from our agriculture is wheat and corn they <laughs> they in some ways you could argue they're the dominant species of the, of earth because we spend so many so much of our resources making more of them um in such large amounts um and making sure that their species survives to uh you know, far into the future um so uh, in some ways you could argue that these plants have like have domesticated us if only plants could listen to podcasts, we'd be popping yeah. off right now with our pro wheat <laughs> stance. <laughs> the superior <laughs> organism, wheat. <laughs> okay, um, are you ready to move on to our cool Easter eggs? Yes, let's do it. Okay, 
So three groups, the Endangered Habitats League, the Santa Margarita Group of the Sierra Club, and Save Our Southwest Hills are honoring Cameron for his portrayal in Avatar of the environmental struggles of the Navi, natives of a planet called Pandora. In the film, a mining company from Earth arrives there to search for a rare mineral in the process, destroys a sacred tree, prompting a battle between the Navi and the company's hired soldiers. Um, so this and then uh, was actually an event that was put on um, by these three organizations that represent indigenous people, um, and they were uh, attempting to give a reward to James Cameron. Not sure if he ever, I think he received the award, but I don't know if he actually appeared at their event or not. Um, but in re- in general, this movie was uh, received well by um, uh, indigenous people all over the world. And there's uh, a really good quote I have here um, from uh, a woman named, uh, Pol- whose last name is Polly Corpse. Uh, Corpse, and she um, she had this to say. I thought the movie was really very good. It really represents the reality that many indigenous people face, and of course, the reality of how indigenous people relate with nature. What I didn't like was the white man being the messiah, but he, Cameron, explained that because he is a white man, he is the one making the film. He would like to show it as a way for the white man to really make the amends for what we have done to indigenous peoples. So this is an interesting argument against the white savior aspect of the movie. And I think it kind of ties into my central takeaway, which is that this movie is about you, the audience, making a decision about which side you want to join, right? And I think that um, uh, in today's world, it's uh, the reality is that you need allies, right? And you need allies from all sorts of different uh, walks of life. Uh, a coalition of race, uh, gender, and class uh, is the only way forward to um, achieving any sort of significant progress going forward. Uh, in the past, these groups have all been abandoned by white people in this, you know, in their pursuit of a slightly a slightly wider net instead of recognizing that everyone is on the same page, basically. So, I think that it's important to for. Uh, James Cameron to appeal to a wide audience, especially an American white audience, uh, because um, those are the people that ultimately hold the power in these sort of situations. We know that the indigenous people and the marginalized people are going to be fighting for their rights, but whether or not they get them is up to the rest of us, basically. And it's sort of an unfortunate reality of it, but it's important to be an ally to the to people that don't have a voice because that's the only way that they are ever going to have a voice. Um, and yeah, it sounds like, you know, I don't, I don't like the way that that like sits, you know? Um, and I'm certainly not comfortable speaking for, you know, marginalized people in any way, but I'm certainly willing to listen and to platform them and to give them a chance to say like what they think, because I think that's uh, an important way to do that. But I don't necessarily, but I don't necessarily believe that they're capable of doing it on their own either. I not because they're not capable of, you know, organizing or anything, but simply because they've never been taken seriously in the past. And uh there's lots of reasons for people at the top to ignore them. So, um without allies, I don't think these people could ever uh make as significant progress as they need to to achieve the goals they want. Yeah, this is a really touchy subject. I, I definitely felt some type of way watching this movie and being like, these aren't just space aliens like these are space natives like these are mm-hmm. they're, they're very clearly trying to there's a line that can easily be drawn from uh you know 
something I'm more familiar with because I went to public school, Native Americans, but just Native cultures in general. Uh, So it's nice to hear that there are Indigenous people who thought this is a good portrayal. But yeah, I definitely don't feel comfortable speaking on that or having an opinion on that. I think that's for them to answer. Um, So and it's good to hear that at least some of them liked it. So uh, during this film's theatrical run, it broke several box office records. This is not a secret, but I feel like it's worth stating while we're talking about this movie. Uh, it became the highest grossing film at the time, uh, you know, in uh, up, as well as in the United States and Canada, um, surpassing Cameron's Titanic, which had held those records for 12 years. Uh, and then Aven- Avatar remained the highest grossing film in the world for nearly a decade until it was overtaken by avengers endgame in 2019 which by the way we did an episode on in case you guys want to listen to that uh and uh a chinese re-release of avatar led to the film retaking the worldwide top spot in march of 2021 and has been there ever since adjusted for inflation avatar is the second highest grossing movie of all time after gone at the wind with a total uh of more than three billion dollars uh it also became the first film to gross more than $2 billion and the best-selling video title of 2010 in the United States. And then Avatar was nominated for nine Academy Awards and won three. Uh, And those three were for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Visual Effects. So highly celebrated movie. And they're the the stats to to back that up. This movie went hard at the box office, uh, to say the absolute least. this movie took four years to make from pre-production to release. So they really had this one uh, you know, working for a really long time, which uh, is that uh, go, like getting into Avatar 2. Um, didn't we talk about how long that one's been in, in uh, pre-production? It's really hard to tell because I think that there's been lots of periods of holding um, because uh, James Cameron had the idea for Avatar long before he was even starting making it. And it wasn't until like around this time, uh, you know, four years previous to the movie coming out that he felt like they even had the technology that that motion capture was good enough to achieve what he was trying to achieve. Um, And then the same is true for the way of water. It's like motion capture underwater was something that James Cameron was sort of, was apparently holding out for. Um, So I think that because after, I don't know if you remember this, but after this movie came out, Maybe like uh, a few months after it was released, they announced that they were going to re- release three sequels to it. Um, and these have been sort of on the back burner. Like if you go to IMDb and just scrolled like through the, like upcoming releases, you'll always see Avatar 2, 3, and 4 at the bottom of the list. Just like, it's coming this year. It's coming next year. And it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> it's been pushed out so many times that it's sort of amazing that it's coming out. And um, I think a lot of that is due because the technology just wasn't ready. So I think it's been sort of an on or off thing, if I, I would guess. Um, but I think that it's certainly been something. It's the only thing James Cameron's been working on since Avatar came out. Um, and uh, we'll see what uh, what happens, I guess. Well, that's really interesting because Avatar was the first directorial feature for James Cameron since Titanic. Uh, so yes. he was working on nothing but Avatar until then, or at least nothing that actually came out, uh, which I think is pretty amazing. Back to back bangers uh, for James. Yeah, Cameron. well, he's he's also done a lot of produ- like executive producing and producing and things. So he's he's been involved in movies, but he's not been at the director's chair since Titanic. 
Uh, Jake's uh, atrophied legs were prosthetic casts from the legs of a real paraplegic, uh, and his real legs were tucked into the wheelchair and digitally removed in post-production. When I first saw this movie, I remember thinking, this is why I've never seen this actor before, because they got an actual paraplegic guy to play him. Um, but no, nah, they just did a really good job with the special effects and uh, making his legs look that way, uh, which also kind of goes along with this next one is that James Cameron wanted an unknown actor to play Jake Sully because it would give the character a real quality. Uh, the, the guy you wanted to have a beer with who ultimately becomes the leader who transforms a whole world. And he really went and got somebody who was unknown because at the time that he auditioned, Sam Worthington was living in his car. So isn't that the same thing that, um, um, the TA-1000? The T 1000 yeah. Uh, Robert Patrick. Pat- Robert Patrick was living in his car. When he was yes. like, oh, this is hilarious. <laughs> James Cameron wants... Act- he either wants the biggest names you've got or somebody you've never heard of before. Some guy off the street. <laughs> somebody you, could n- you can't have heard of before. Like, it's, it's either Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> <laughs> or some kid that you found out of school. I <laughs> uh, thought that was pretty dang cool. Uh, he That's did a great funny. job, too. It really yeah, like puts Sam into Worthy. question, uh, you know, this whole acting, acting thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, too, is I, I, all these accounts that I, I read uh, about James Cameron and his actors, he, put, he seems to have a lot of respect for his actors and seems to let them choose a lot of what they're going to do, right? In Aliens, for example, there's a lot of ad-libbing in, in things. And I think even in Avatar, uh, Sigourney Weaver had a lot of notes about Grace Augustine and how she would act and everything. I think he he seems to have like uh, builds frameworks for characters and then gives them to the actors to fill out the rest of. So um, it is surprising to see he uses so much um, raw talent, I guess you could say, or you know, uncut gems um, uh, to reference another movie. Nice, we did, but it's <laughs> not. Um, uh, but it's not clear to me that like I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the magic he's he's pulling in the background there because I don't feel like this works every time. Um, but I, I felt like Sam Worthington was, uh, was pretty good. The, you know, and the emotion capture and everything certainly adds a lot to his expression, um, when he's, uh, playing the avatar. So, which of course I've heard is like, it's sort of an argument about like how much acting is involved in that because, um, you can, because the motion capture is completely digital, you could alter people's expressions after the fact, right? If he doesn't react in a way that you specifically like you can just change the shape of his face to make it look like he's acting the way you want it to so um but i, 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 I think that's a lot of work the, but yeah yes and i also think that there's plenty that just comes out of the base performance I, I i understand that argument and that's that could definitely be done in a way that you wouldn't even notice it whatever but one of the things i read about this movie was james cameron saw Gollum and lord of the rings was like oh okay the technology is there like let's pull the trigger on this because it can be done um yeah. and what's his name um andy circus is definitely great as Gollum. i think there's plenty that you can give to the actors in this movie as like credit to having done a good job um and it is interesting how their likenesses <laughs> come come through on the avatars uh, yes it's it's they definitely look different but they also look similar enough it's uh, another thing that I want to point out is uh, Zoe Saldala, who plays uh, Natiri. Um, she uh, she was upset by her own movie, right? She was in Endgame, uh, where she plays Gamora, uh, but in neither of those movies does she have her natural skin color. Yeah. <laughs> She's blue in Avatar and green in, in Adventures. That's her specialty. <laughs> I guess so. 
<laughs> making the highest grossing movies by playing someone of a different color. Uh, hilarious. But yeah, she, you know, uh, she stood out more to me way more than any of the other characters, um, even though she doesn't have a human uh, like uh, avatar anyway. Okay, Joey, I think you know what time it is. It's time for us to go a little deeper. So I read this book um, this year called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. It's really short. I recommend everyone read it. It's very good. Um, and it's basically about the importance of having a close-knit community and the um, ways that we have sort of... Uh, it's hard, uh, How do I describe this? It's the ways that we don't have that in normal society. And when we find it in moments of crisis or something, we miss those moments of hardship because they had something that we're missing in our regular lives. One of the examples that he gives is um, uh, people in the military who are in a close-knit troop, right? They are overseas, they're in a dangerous um, country, a, d- a dangerous environment where they could be killed or any of their friends could be killed or are horribly injured at any moment. But many of those people, uh, after they leave the military and come back home, say that they miss that. And the thing that he says that they miss is the brotherhood and camaraderie of their fellow people, not necessarily being in a dangerous place, not necessarily constantly, you know, uh, being, you know, bombarded by, uh, you know, terrifying, life-threatening events. It's uh, like being in a close-knit group of people that you care for and know that care for you. And he says that we, when we're missing this, we like we're missing something very essential about our lives. So one of the examples that he gives of people doing things that may seem counterintuitive in order to seek out communities is when colonists were first coming to the New World, to America, um, there was all these accounts of white settlers running off to quote unquote go native. They would join the native tribes um and stick with them like uh afterward even if they were like prisoners of war they would be captured by the by the indians and then they would be assimilated into their society so that when they said here you can go they're like uh can i stay (laughs) (laughs) well this is crazy i've never heard this so um what he said that like these civilized you know humans would come in and they would be face to face with these quote unquote, Stone Age tribes who had not changed in 15,000 years. And many of these societies were broadly egalitarian um, and uh, they were, you know, supposedly not civilized, right? According to the, to the, to the, the settlers and to the colonists, but um, there was something about them that they didn't, um, they didn't like. And there's this quote from Benjamin Franklin who wrote a letter which I'm going to attempt to read uh, because Benjamin Franklin is a fancy old man. So sometimes his words sound silly. So I'm going to attempt to read this in a coherent way, uh, which kind of puts into relief the, the general confusion that people were feeling at the time. The proneness of human nature to a life of ease, the freedom from care and labor appears strongly in the little success that has hitherto attended even att- every attempt to a civilized our American Indians in their present way of living 
Almost all their wants are supplied by the spontaneous productions of nature, with the addition of very little labor, if hunting and fishing may indeed be called labor, when game is so plenty. They visit us frequently and see the advantages that arts, sciences, and compact society procure us. They are not uh, deficit. Uh, deficient? Yeah. They are not deficient in natural understanding, and yet they have never shown any inclination to change their manner of life for ours, or to learn any of our arts. When an, when an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, and habituated to our customs, yet it goes to see his relatives and makes one Indian rabble with them, there is no persuading him ever to return, and that is not natural to them merely as Indians, but as men. In plain from this, that when white persons of either sex have been taken prisoners young by the alien, by, sorry, by the Indians, not the aliens, uh, and lived a while among them, thou ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and the care and pains that are necessary to support it, and take the first good opportunity to escaping again into the woods, from whence there is no reclaiming them. One instance I remembered to have heard, where the person was brought home to possess a good estate, but finding some care necessary to keep it together, he relinquished it to a younger brother, reserving to himself nothing but a gun and a match coat, which, with which he took his way again to the wilderness. So, to uh, maybe that was hard to understand, but basically he's saying that people, it only works one way. When Indian children are living among white people, as soon as they see Indian culture, they're like, See you guys, I'm going to live with, my, with the Indians. And when white people are captured by Native Americans and they're like, hey, come on back, you know, we've played your ransom. They're like, I don't know, actually, I think it's better to live here. <laughs> and this was true for men and women, but especially women, because women, there was a woman who wrote to one of her friends and said, uh, after she joined with the Native Americans, she said, I have experienced more freedom here than I ever did in my previous life. They don't tell, they don't tell me who I have to marry or what I have to do or anything. I can, I can basically do whatever I want and decide to live my life however I want. And that was something that would be completely foreign to someone uh, from like a white culture. Um, anyway, it, it's a fascinating thing. And Sebastian Younger says that it's because like these people are seeking out a close-knit tribe. Um, and, and that's why like, uh, these people were doing this. Um, but it's, it's fun to think about, especially in the context of this movie, because, um, there's something so attractive about living with Navi that the, uh, the settlers and the colonists, uh, the humans, uh, simply don't understand and are not giving, you know? pretty amazing that's crazy i never <laughs> heard this before um that is wild and to have benjamin franklin state it so eloquently i mean yeah one um, of the best benjamins right yes definitely <laughs> one of the top dollar benjamins uh here <laughs> stating this and glad to have finally quoted him on the podcast um but yeah that is really interesting and it does pair well with this movie i mean it's exactly <laughs> what jake <laughs> realized and then ended up if only I mean, they're, the, they're already human, so they can just become uh, Indian by just declaring it. But, uh, yeah. you know, Jake has a couple more steps involved in that. Exactly. But, hey, it works out for him. 
All right. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of this discussion. Yeah, but a big movie like this dis- deserves a big discussion. So that's right. Uh, that's why this episode is so long. Uh, but as we do at the end of every episode of Apple Chat, we will now deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to Avatar? I give this movie an Ethernet connection from my nervous system to a big ass tree. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, that wired connection is so much faster than right. wireless uh, connection to the tree. Um, I am going to give this movie one chance to make an amazing sequel that ups the ante in the same way that Terminator 2 and Aliens did. Uh, I'm really, really Uh, having high expectations going into Avatar The Way of the Water, uh, which is a James Cameron sequel, uh, and we'll see if he can deliver on uh, on this one. So uh, that actually leads to my next question. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? The next movie we're doing is the big one. The one we've been leading up to for how long has it been? Like six weeks? Uh, Avatar, The Way of the Water. The Way of Water? The is wh- it, what, what is this movie called? <laughs> <laughs> Avatar, The Way of Water. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> we'll be coming to you with the correct title of that movie and analysis and our reactions to it on our very next episode. So it's, uh, right. it's, it's coming up. It's finally going to be here. Uh, in the future go out and see it and uh, tell us what you think Um, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes Spotify Google Play or wherever you get your podcast applechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet that's where you can find the latest from us and all our social media accounts including Twitter Instagram TikTok and YouTube all of which are at applechat and even our email address applechat at gmail.com if you like this episode, then tell a friend about it. All you have to say is, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. That's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>